How do you sell a company? Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm your host, Greg Gallant, and today our guest is Derek Sivers, the founder of CD Baby. Derek was on our show almost exactly three years ago. Since then, he sold his company, CD Baby. We decided to come back on the show, hear about how he sold it, why he sold it, and what he's doing next. Hope you enjoy this show. We really get into the nitty-gritty of how you go about selling a company. Also, as a special treat, for the first time ever, Derek publicly announces why he sold the company and how much he sold it for. Enjoy. Derek, welcome back to Venture Voice. Thanks. It's good to have you back on. Last time we had you on the show, and this is the first for us, by the way, in having a guest back on after a period of time. <laughs> uh, so last time you were on, it was November 2005, yeah. I guess about just about almost three years ago on the mark. And at the time, you were happy as a clam running, uh, running your business, CD Baby. You told me you had $25 million in revenue and about 50 employees. And no plans to ever sell it. <laughs> and, no, and you were going to hold on to it till the day you died. And I really meant that. That wasn't just posturing. P- even close friends would ask, and I'd say, no way, man. This is what I love doing. I'm going to do this till the day I die. So, uh, so I guess now you're, you know, you're begging the question why. But, but before we get into that, why don't you just tell, first, just give me the quick pitch for what CD Baby was for anyone who doesn't know, and tell me, you know, up until the time you decided to sell, kind of what happened to the business over those three years? Sure. In 1997, I was a musician selling my own CD. And uh, at the time, there were absolutely no stores anywhere online that would sell it for you. Uh, Amazon only sold books. Uh, CD now only sold major label artists. And there were a handful of other businesses, but they were only like a front end to the major label distribution system. If you were just a guy with a CD that wanted to sell it yourself, there was absolutely nothing. So I didn't even mean to start a business. All I did is I went through all of the boring monotony to get my own credit card merchant account and build my own shopping cart and uh, and by the way this is before PayPal too so you know if you wanted to accept money from anybody you had to go through like a 3 month long $1000 setup process uh, mountains of red tape separate bank account kind of stuff just to be able to accept credit card payments online you know those were the days and uh so I really just built this infrastructure to sell my own CD but then some of my friends said Hey man, could you sell my CD? And I said, Yeah, sure, okay. And that was CD Baby. So um, it really just grew out of this need to, uh, or this kind of desire to help my friends. It was this co-op kind of feeling, like, okay, I've built this whole thing just for me, but hey, as long as it's here, I'll let you use it. Um, and it's funny because that became the spirit of everything else I did. So. I went and paid the the huge setup fee to get my own UPC barcode account so I could generate UPC barcodes. Then some of my friends needed a barcode, and I said, yeah, okay, I'll make you one. And then I learned how to set up a nice, strong Unix web server that could handle a lot of load, and some of my friends were complaining about their, their web hosting company. So I said, I'll host your website, you know, doing it for me. So then I made HostBaby. And, uh, yeah, it's just kind of... You know, for over the next ten years, it just the company kept that same kind of spirit, and CD Baby grew into one of the largest uh, sellers and distributors of independent music online. Great, and so since uh, since two thousand five, what what changed? Uh, let's say between two thousand five and the beginning of this year, 
had the business changed a lot? Had it grown? Had it kind of flatlined? Where was it at? It was somewhat of a plateau, a more just from a personal point of view. From a business point of view, you could just see that the line just kept going up. It was doing better than ever. Um, you know, sales kept growing. The number of signups kept growing. Everything was cool, except that it just kind of hit this point where I just personally felt like, man, I'm kind of doing the exact same thing I've been doing for years. Like, uh, you know, there's um, I, I don't, I haven't figured out a proper metaphor for this yet, but it's this feeling that you know, it takes a, a certain amount of energy to go from zero to sixty, and then it's almost like it takes that same amount of energy just to go from 60 to 70. You know what I mean? Where it's like, when I looked at my projects, I'm, I'm quite organized, so I had all my projects laid out in front of me, like, okay, here's some of the things I want to change. So in fact, I'll just give you a specific. So cdbaby.com, the website, only sold complete albums. You couldn't just go buy a song, like track seven off an album. It was only a complete album. So some of our users said that they wanted a, to be able to buy one song. But the technical work in order to make that happen would have required almost a complete overhaul of every last little bit of code in the base because everything since day one was designed programming-wise around the album as the the atom. You know, that was like the unit <laughs> was the album. So to break it into a song would have required just a massive complete overhaul and I found myself, like, at the end of 2007, looking at projects like that. And imagine about 40 other projects like that. You know, a complete overhaul in order to accept multiple currencies. A complete overhaul in order to have multiple warehouses in other countries. And I just kind of looked at all these projects. And I was like, man, you know what? That's going to take nine months of hard work. And when done, it'll be a tiny incremental improvement. I thought, I think I'd like to go do something else now. <laughs> and that's really all there was to it. I just hit that point where I just wanted to do something else. And uh, it's kind of cool when you're the owner of the company that you can – well, hell, you know, actually, wait. even if you work anywhere, if you work at a company or you own the company, you can make that decision that you're just ready to do something else, even if what you're doing is going really well. It's just this decision that, you know, the, the personal challenge lies elsewhere, and it's time to – Get out of your rut and take the uh, do the scary challenge of doing something new. And so, when did you make this decision in your mind that it's time to sell? It was. I've actually haven't ever told this publicly, so here you go. It was January eighteenth, uh, my sister's birthday. Just by coincidence, it was just this day where honestly, um, three companies in one week had called me asking if I wanted to sell CD Baby. And I told them all no, as I've told every company for years. I was like, no, I'm not selling. Come on, let, go, let it go. <laughs> and um, so I told them all no. But, I mean, a couple days later, uh, and I just remember it was the it was January 18th, 2008. I thought, well, what if? Okay, I've got an imagination. Let me pull up a blank text document and start typing. What if I did sell it? Then what? And for the first time ever um, – it was an inspiring idea. I think before I had done that kind of what if scenario in years past, but every time I wrote it, it would be like, no, that would be terrible. This is my baby. This is what I do. This is what I love. No, there's no way you can make me sell it. No amount of money. Forget it. And 
then when I looked at it again, uh, January 2008, I was like, yeah, you know what? That would be kind of cool because what it really came down to was there were so many other things I had been kind of aching to do for musicians. Things like this idea I was calling muckwork and this idea of doing a, a documentary interviewing the grassroots music biz people that are on the receiving end of your music or telling success stories of artists who are doing really well. Uh, things like that. There were all these projects I had been wanting to do and didn't have time to do them because I still kind of was responsible for CD Baby, even though I had been kind of absent. But yeah, just hit that point where I was like, yeah, I think I'd like to. So I called back, uh, I think just a couple days later. I sat on my decision for a couple days and then I called back Disc Makers, who were my uh, first choice. Um, they were not offering the most money, but I knew that they would do the best job of running the company because they had, uh, we'd already been working side by side for seven years. I'd seen their operations. I'd been really impressed. They were always kind of my first choice for who I thought would do a great job at running CD Baby. So I gave them first dibs and they took it. So give me a snapshot of the company then on, on your sister's birthday. What was it like at that point in terms of how many employees you had, how many, uh, how much revenue you had, and how many CDs you were processing? Uh, off the top of my head, I think it was like 85 employees. Uh, I'm sorry, I forget the amount of revenue. I know we had paid out about 80 million, so let's say amount of revenue, 90 or 100 million or something like that. Um, and uh, number of CDs, also about 200,000 albums from about uh, 150,000 clients. And um, yeah, I think that's about it. But more interesting for your story was that I hadn't actually been to the office in almost a year. Uh, in spring of 2007, I uh, sold my car and uh, up and left and moved to London for six months. And if, if any of your... Listeners have read The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. <laughs> I read that book while sitting in London. It was kind of preaching to the converted. It talks about you know how to uh, be just the business owner so that you're not uh, required for the day-to-day -day operations of your business. Uh, so I was kicking it in London, hardly uh, ever t even talking to my company, uh, just kind of working on some programming and stuff like that. Um, I lived there for seven or eight months last year, and... Uh, Four-hour work week was definitely a good inspiration, kind of uh, giving further ideas on that path. But um, then even when I came back to the States at the end of the year, um, didn't even go into the office, just didn't want to see anybody there. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, so um, by the time I sold the company in August 2008, I hadn't been to the office in a year and a half. So I'd already kind of had one foot out the door, you could say. So what, why didn't you want to see these people? Like, I mean, you, you know, you hired them. I'd imagine, you know, they were your buddies. <laughs> uh, you got both of those wrong so far. <laughs> wow. So, well, who hired them? You know what? Uh... <laughs> uh, we, we shouldn't go into the ugly details, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, et cetera. But, um, no, I hired the, the early gang of CD Baby, you know, from say 2001, sorry, when it started it in 1998 through about 2001-2002, I was uh, really involved. And the, the original gang that was there in the first few years was just awesome, and I was very close with them. Um, after that, I kind of uh, – I really started letting go in, like, 2002. I think there was um, – there's this moment that any small business owner uh, has to get to where – 
you realize that if you don't learn to delegate that you are trapped and i i meet so many people with businesses that just felt like you know starting their own company was going to be liberating but all of a sudden you find out now that owning your own company can be this trap where you get no peace and i meet these people that you know haven't had a day off in 5 years or whatever and uh, so it was really around the end of 2002 where uh, i stepped back i I started started not going into the office and just teaching everybody else there how to do everything I was doing and making myself unnecessary to the operations of the company. Um, so I uh, hadn't really been there since 2002, and I, we just kind of set up a system where they did their own hiring, and uh, the side effect of that was that I didn't even know the people that worked there anymore. It's like I had this company with 85 employees, and I think I knew maybe 20 of them. Uh, and I think I was friends with maybe 10 of them. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, I was already pretty alienated from my own company at the time. So, and do you have, do you have regrets about that or do you feel like you did the right thing and, you know, you're having a blast at home all day? Yeah, I think it was no regrets. There's, uh, you know, looking back, there were some cultural things. I take full responsibility for everything that happened, you know, cause some, some really messed up things happened culturally inside the company. Um, near the end, and it was this weird imbalance where they kind of created their own culture that wanted to do things a certain way, which is the opposite way from how I wanted to do things. And uh, <laughs> I learned that there is such a thing as over-delegating, <laughs> that you can um, uh, over-delegate to the point where I wasn't even checking in, and uh, the company had kind of gone off in this direction. I didn't even realize it because I was trying so hard to be good at delegating that I kind of uh, yeah I over-delegated and the culture took uh, twists internally that I never would have expected and it wasn't the one I wanted and uh, instead of changing it I just let them have it the way they wanted it and, and I decided to walk instead of them. Wow, that's interesting. Actually, the only other time I've heard that we had uh, Jay Adelson on the show of, uh, of Dig in, in his previous company Equinix um, He'd actually said he overdelegated and kind of same thing made him did too, I guess too good a job at that and made himself kind of irrelevant to the business. Well, now being irrelevant to the business can be a great thing. Um, being unneeded for the operations is a is a crucial thing. Um, but I think there is a thing culturally where um, I mean I've learned a lot of lessons since then. You know, I mean it, it hasn't even been that long, but I've been kind of fascinated with what I did wrong. <laughs> so I've been studying a lot about that. Um, so, you know, there's such a thing as when you delegate something. Actually, there's this beautiful book that um, it wasn't a top seller. Uh, so if anybody's interested in this subject that we're talking about right now, check out this book called uh, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Uh, and it's all about uh, communication skills in a business. And Man, just reading this book, it sounds like the guy had uh, been living inside CD Baby and studying me and then wrote a whole book about like what not to do, you know, because uh, it is just everything I did wrong from the idea of, he said, now very often uh, leaders will have a fully formed idea in their head and they will either uh, call a meeting or, or give some quick memo to the company saying, attention company, um, from now on we are going to do... XYZ. So please make it happen. Go. Goodbye. 
<laughs> and he said, then three months later, the leader checks back and says, what's going on? Why isn't this happening? I told you three months ago. And he said, but you have to remember, people aren't mind readers. You know, they need, you can't just say something once and expect it to happen. You need to follow through. You need to be specific. You need to really be diligent to make sure that if this is something that's important to you, that you, uh, you follow through to make sure it's happening. It's all in the details. You can't just stay top level and bark out something once and expect it to happen. So, uh, yeah, real kind of forehead slapping moment there where you look back and go, ooh, yeah, I did a lot of that. <laughs> so, I don't know. I'm sorry. I, don't, I wasn't sure if this is the tangent you wanted to take with this phone call, but uh, that's kind of the summary of what went on. No, I mean, I think this is great stuff. I guess, you know, what the most people don't delegate enough, it keeps them from growing and having a good time. And then I guess the flip side is, can you, can you have it both ways? Can you delegate and, and also keep things going in the right direction? So I think it's a, a great lesson. Yeah, you're right. It is, uh, there is a good balance. And luckily, I mean, I do think there are some great books, um, that talk about it. Another great one besides, um, what got you here won't get you there is a book called Execution by I think it's pronounced Ram Charan C-H-A-R-A-N Execution is a brilliant book about uh, exactly this how to take things that are goals or things that you want to make happen and how to follow through to make sure they happen um, in that case though it says that the the leader must be the one who's really there on a day-to-day level really getting to know people uh, really involved in in everything every day. So I think the other difference that I learned from all this is that I don't want to be that guy again. So for anything new I start up, I'm not going to be president. I may be uh, founder or uh, owner, or in corporate terms it would be the chairman or something, but I don't want to be president again because I think that was the other trouble is that um, I was still president, which is a role that kind of requires you to be there and be involved, but I wasn't. So I really should have should have kind of put another president in place um, that I that really shared my same vision through and through that I would just trust to just do it. But instead, there were kind of lots of managers, um, but nobody that I felt like really shared my vision for the company. So there's, in fact, I'm sorry. This must it might be old hat for your users, but it's worth repeating every now and then. Um, one of the hardest lessons learned is uh, the difference between being self-employed and being a business owner. And Robert Kiyosaki has this beautiful phrase that said, uh, you know you're a true business owner when you can leave your company for a year and come back and it's doing better than when you left. I remember reading that in 2002 going, hell yeah, that's what I need. Um, But in order to be a true business owner – you do need to delegate the role of leadership. At that point, you really are just the owner, meaning like you're. It's almost like just being the investor. You know, you're just the one that owns the shares of the company, and because you're the owner, you can perhaps occasionally give a little guidance and say, "I think we should be doing this," or "I want to fund this new development." But if you're not going to be there, the company really needs a leader. Yeah, it's a great distinction. So. Let's, I want to get into that more on how you're going to kind of take it to the next level with uh, your next venture. But first, just jumping back to January 18th, tell me, um, did you own the whole company or was there had there been any shares given away where you had to bring other people on board for the sale? 
no, it was it was always one hundred. Sorry, it, it, yeah, it was one hundred percent me. Yeah, there was a situation where years earlier my uh, my dad had lent me some money into in return for some shares, but I bought him out. Um, and uh, so yeah, I was the one hundred percent owner. Another fascinating bit of advice I read from uh, a guy named Felix Dennis, who uh, wrote a book. Uh, he's a British publisher. He owns a bunch of those like uh, Computer World magazines and Mac World and PC World or whatever magazines in the UK. One of the most successful magazine publishers in the UK wrote a book where I think the guy's in his 60s now, and he has that wonderful cocky tone of nothing to lose, like – Fuck it, I'm just gonna tell you the truth because I don't care what you think of me, and I don't need you anyway. And he just wrote this book, I guess, just sharing his uh, philosophies on business, which I guess he wants to do before he dies. And uh, by the way, the guy parties. Apparently, he doesn't have long left. But um, anyway, one of the things he said is never, 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 never give anybody. A piece of your business. Um, yes, you can give big bonuses, you can give big rewards, but never, and I mean never, give anybody even a single percentage of equity. Um, and he just talked about how uh, countless times he he's been so glad he made that decision, and it's almost almost like the single biggest lesson uh, he had to share in his whole book. He kept coming back to it. Uh, well, actually, one was to do the things that you're scared to do, but. Two was never give anybody a piece of your company, uh, and his insistence on that I thought was just fascinating. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah glad I, really, I, uh, I had a chance to see him speak in person once. Real character. Oh, you did. Actually, he was reading poetry. He has a uh, <laughs> yeah. that's his like second passion apparently. Exactly. Yeah. Where did you see him talk? Uh, down in Atlanta about three years ago. He had this event, and I think to get people there, since he was. Um, Less proven as a poet, he he you know had all this free wine and stuff, and it was just kind of open to anybody. <laughs> so I came down and uh, <laughs> shook his hand, and he signed his poetry book for me. Real character. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, I'd love to uh, hear him talk. I loved his book. I mean, it's really it. If you liked his talk, look up his book. It's uh, it's fascinating. Real do. So, so tell me, like, let's jump back. Uh, so into the sale now. So you had you know you're saying eighty to hundred million in revenue. The whole company, people wanting to buy it, so you decide, okay, I'm going to sell this thing. What number did you come up with to sell it at? Um, $22 million. And where, how did you arrive at that? What, what kind of math went on? Um, I had looked into selling it earlier um, and decided I didn't want to. But I decided after actually already going through the due diligence process, through having a few different companies... Uh, you know, through the whole like NDA opening up the books or whatever, a few different companies made their bid, and um, yeah, so I just I knew that that was <clears throat> about the the right price, and in talks with other people, I probably could have got more, but also there's a there's a certain point where it wasn't about the money to me. Uh, it was really just that I didn't want to work at CD Baby anymore, and I wanted to make sure the company was in good hands. And so I just said, well, you know, whatever, fair market price, good enough. We actually didn't, we didn't kind of bicker or negotiate over the price one bit. I just kind of set a price. They said, okay. And that all happened back in early January. Then there was just seven months of uh, 
boring due diligence paperwork that the banks and lawyers had to do to make everything official. But uh, yeah, it was as simple as me stating a number and them saying okay, and that was that. So um, yeah, there's a certain another thing. Sorry, I'm quoting a lot of books today, but I've been doing a lot of reading in the last eight months. Beautiful book called Stumbling on Happiness talks about um, how. Uh, I'm sorry, no, I actually think it might even be the paradox of choice. Anyway, the idea that the people who always try to make the absolute best decision uh, end up torturing themselves. Like if you think, uh, you know, I, I, I want to buy a car or a computer or something like that. Some people will spend months and months in anguish trying to get the absolute best decision and trying to get the absolute best deal. And they will, you know, negotiate for hours or days or weeks down to every last little dollar. And in the end, they're saying, interestingly enough, psychologically, um, people who do that end up feeling worse about their decision. And people who just kind of shrug and say good enough, psychologically, are much happier. And in the end, the difference between the people who try to maximize and get the best deal possible and the people who they say uh, the word they use is satisfice. Uh, who just kind of are satisfied uh, with good enough, the difference between the two, uh, decision-wise, is not very much. It's you know the difference of 1% or something, but the difference in happiness is immense. Um, so I think I, uh, I've i learned through uh, trial and error and some good examples to uh, to just kind of be a good enough kind of guy. Like, eh, yeah, whatever, cool, you know. I'm happier that way. So I think this was the first business you started, but uh, is it correct to say this is the first business you sold? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So both CD Baby and Host Baby together, yeah. So when you went into this, like, did you just kind of manage it all on your own, or did you rely heavily on advisors, lawyers, bankers, other entrepreneurs? How do you go about kind of getting your, your compass on how you should handle the process? Oh, it was all just – it was me – Calling up the cell phone number of the president of Disc Makers, who I already had known as a friend, naming a price, him basically saying, okay. And we're like, all right, there we go. So we both said, okay. And then, you know, they shot over something the next week, like a fax for me to sign, like a letter of intent kind of thing. And um, that was that. Then I just, yeah, called up a, my lawyer who was already working with CD Baby anyway and said, okay, make it happen. <laughs> and again, this was something where I decided was fine for me to stay out of the process. Along the way, they tried to um, involve me many, 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 many times for the next eight months of paperwork. And I, I realized, you know, this isn't some specialty knowledge that only I have. You know, there's a lawyer at the law firm that that's what he does is help uh, companies sell. And he's done this a hundred times in the past 10 years. So I just let him do his thing. Uh, many times he'd kind of refer to me and say, what do you think about that? What do you think about this? And after a while, I just ended up telling him, look, here are the four most important things to me. As long as these four things are met, just you work out the details. <laughs> I don't really, you know, I don't really care about the other points. Um, I just want to make sure that the company's in good hands and that I don't need to do anything after the day of the sale. Like I'm not going to work there anymore, you know, um, so um, so that was that. So I got them to just take care of it. And yeah, of course, the legal bills are huge, but you know, um, whatever. How much were the legal bills? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Whatever was my... 
that's my real answer. I, I've erased it from my memory. I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's probably a wise decision. Yeah. So I, I imagine what would jump out at people is you said it took seven months to sell. I mean, we all just read about J.P. Morgan Chase buying Bear Stearns and you know, they hammered that deal out in a weekend and it was a multi-billion dollar company. So, uh, so, you know, why does it take seven months to sell a business? I don't know. I was really surprised at that too. I think the deal was that the buyer was getting money, was borrowing money from an investment bank in order to do the purchase. And so they had to kind of present the case to somebody else. So even though I think Disc Makers, the company that bought CD Baby, uh, believed in its uh, profitability or whatever that they believed in it and like I said we had a, a an agreed upon a willing buyer and a willing seller with an agreed upon price way back in January and then it was really just like seven months of of details uh, just to get back to the same point so it's like seven months later they had everything proven to make their case for the bank so they could get the money so they could buy the company um, and uh, a lot of it was hell it was kind of like you know, I'd, they'd kind of say, "Okay, now please prepare for us a list of your top 100 customers it's in descending order, with list grouped by country, grouped by month of invoice, with a summary of the monthly invoices, with something something sorted in descending order, but grouped, but excluding those who have been there for longer than six years, and such and such and such." And I ended up taking this as kind of like a database challenge. You know, I'm a programming geek, so I'd say. All right, you know, I'd squint and I'd say I could do that, and I'd, <laughs> and I'd spend like a few hours with the database and give them their damn summary, all the while knowing that I, I could have just been a cocky bastard and just you know said no. <laughs> Here, here's my database. You go figure it out yourself. Um, but I ended up just liking it as a geeky kind of a tech database challenge. But um, it was lots of that kind of stuff, and. Um, Endless kind of niggling back and forth on you know the occasional sentence here and there in the contract, um, but in the end we just ended up at the same place where we started, which is uh, you know back in January I told the guy my price and my four important terms and he said okay and that was that so we just ended up in the same place seven months later but now the bankers were happy <laughs> they'd earned their uh, whatever their chunk of the sale was right? yeah yeah exactly. So, uh, and then the deal closed just to kind of finish the story here over the summer, right? August 1st, yeah. August 1st. So, August 1st, um, I guess you got the money in the bank. That's enough money that uh, you don't have to work another day in your life. So, you know, how'd that, did that change your lifestyle at all? Not one bit. I wasn't sure if it would, and the answer is it didn't. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting. In fact, that was always... This sounds weird, and you know you might think I'm lying, but um, it was part of the reason I didn't want to sell before is I didn't even want the money. I just I felt icky about uh, having that much money. That's just stupid amount of money. Um, so you know, as the previous like in 2007, I was <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. This is actually story worthy for you here. So in 2007, when I started to feel like I wanted out of CD Baby, I actually reverted back to my original plan. And I should have included this earlier in the story. Um, back when I started the company, uh, it was 1997, 98. It was a little before the dot-com boom, right? So just a year or two into it, I'm still like a guy in my house with one employee working part-time. And people are already asking me if I'm going to do an IPO, if I'm going to sell it, whatever. 
so I always said no, um, but I said, you know what? If I ever do sell it, here's how I'm going to do it. Or if I ever do want to quit, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it like Willy Wonka. I'm going to put five golden tickets into five CDs, run a massive campaign so that everywhere people are buying millions of CDs just to try to find the five with the golden ticket in it. And then I'll get the people who found the five golden tickets together. But since I don't own a uh, chocolate river uh, to you know push somebody into to knock them off, instead what I'll do is I'll hold a musician's event where all of my uh, clients, all of the musicians can come for free and the five finders of the five golden tickets will be up there on stage like a presidential debate kind of thing, except all of the musicians can then grill them saying, what are you going to do to such and such? And how can you do, uh, you know, what's your philosophy? And each one of the five finders of the golden tickets would have to give their philosophy for if they owned the company, how they would do it. And then the musicians would vote who they wanted to be the new owner of the company. And then I would literally sign the papers over and that person would be the new owner of the company, but on one condition that they also can't sell it. That if at some point they want out, they'll have to do the same process over again. I thought it was a beautiful plan. <laughs> and I actually seriously almost did it in uh, fall of 2007. I got quite serious about it and I was planning on doing it and I was going to like, you know, move to New York City for a while, get ready to kind of do a whole kind of press barrage and, um, and in the end, I kind of thought, well, hell, but if I do that, I don't know. That's kind of – I just decided – I think a bunch of friends convinced me that it was just kind of stupid. They're like, look, you know <laughs> – a friend of mine said, look, us Jews have a saying. That's like leaving money on the table. <laughs> you don't leave money on the table. What are you talking about? So, um, yeah, I decided not to do that, but it was a beautiful idea. So that was kind of plan A, and then actually selling it was plan B. Um so, um, I'm sorry, how did we get onto this tangent? Oh, you talked about, I'm sorry, the money uh, the day before and after the sale. Um, so, yeah, part of the reason I wanted to do that is that uh, I didn't even want the money. It wasn't about that. So, when I did decide to sell, what I did is um, I created a uh, what's called a, a charitable trust. And I transferred the ownership of the company as much as I could into the trust before selling it. Um, so that when disc makers bought CD Baby, they actually purchased it from the charitable trust. So that all the money went into the trust, and the name of the trust is the Independent Musicians Charitable Trust. And all of that money is going to go to music education when I die. So it's not even mine. It uh, It's sitting in a trust fund that will never go to me, never go to my kids or grandkids or whatever. It's all just going back to musicians. Um uh, in the meantime, while I'm alive, I get to uh, live off the um, the interest from it, uh, so that I don't have to, you know, go get a real job. But um, when I die, uh, it all goes back to the musicians anyway. So that's how I kind of justified it, saying, "Okay, that's that's better than just a little golden ticket PR thing." So I guess the obvious question is, uh, you know, there are some people out there who would say, "Well, why not? Why not just take the capital?" Buy a yacht, a helicopter, whatever, whatever you do with it, you know, change change the lifestyle. You couldn't pay me to do that stuff. I, I sure as hell don't want a fucking helicopter, and I don't want to own a big house with ten rooms because it's a pain in the ass to clean. And uh, you know, I'd already made those lifestyle choices. You know, I don't want that stuff. I 
everything I own fits into two suitcases. Uh, for a lot of the last year and a half, I've lived out of a backpack, and I like it that way. I got my laptop, and I've got a few books, and uh, that's about it. That's about all I own, and I like it that way. So I'd already made that lifestyle choice, um, so I didn't want all that other stuff. Great. So I guess part of continuing the lifestyle for you was launching another venture. So you would kind of alluded to it before uh, with muck work and some of your other projects, but uh, kind of fell into pieces now. How, how'd those come about while you were selling CD Baby? Um, it was actually in the years leading up to it, I just had this idea that, you know, the reason I started CD Baby wasn't to stick CDs into envelopes. That wasn't my mission in life. <laughs> and it wasn't to uh, upload files to Apple. That wasn't a big passion of mine. It was all just about helping my musician friends with whatever I could help them with. And I found that that was still my passion, that even if um, – and again, this is kind of why I said I was never going to sell CD Baby. It's like it never really felt like work. Um, this is just what I do anyway, even if it pays nothing. So the wonderful idea of selling CD Baby was just like, oh, wow. Now, if I were to do this – then I can continue to do things that help musicians forever, and I don't need to worry about whether it's uh, going to make a good return on investment or anything like that. So, for example, let's talk about the the more obvious ones. Um, for years, I've wanted to do a documentary interviewing the people that are on the receiving end of your music. So I think a lot of musicians, um, we kind of send our music out into the world, and we don't really understand or even think about what it's like to be on the receiving end. You know, you send out your album to a bunch of people to review it, and you just get kind of really self-involved saying, you know, what the hell, fucking jerk didn't review it, or this guy gave it a bad review, what an ass. And you never really think about, like, you know, this guy named Jeff, who's living in some apartment in Cleveland reviewing albums. Why? You know, <laughs> it, it pays 10 bucks. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of stress or whatever. And uh, when I was out promoting my own record uh, in the like 97, 96, I just found it really enlightening to meet these people, uh, you know, people that work at radio stations and the people that are writers for magazines and the people that are that do the bookings at clubs and realize, like, I'm sorry, you know, it sounds simple, but they've got their own uh, set of worries and concerns um, that have nothing to do with what the musicians want. And all of a sudden it made my job a lot easier as a musician being more understanding, understanding what it's like to try to run a profitable venue, because uh, you know most people that own venues aren't rich; they're like you know always on the verge of going out of business. And people that review music for magazines um, are always on the verge of broke, but they just do it because they love it so much. And so I've always wanted to do a documentary profiling these people, but I doubted it was the kind of thing I could really sell, and I didn't. You know, I kind of just wanted to do it for education's purpose. I didn't care about selling a DVD for 40 bucks and and making some money off of doing it. It was just something that I felt needed to be done. So what I love now is that I can do projects like that um, infinitely without uh, needing to worry about them having any kind of return. Just if it's something that I think musicians uh, could use or something that would help them, I can just do it, and I love that. So... Um, that was the big inspiration and with all these new projects I'm starting. So when you go into these, you don't – some people think before launching into a venture, well, 
you know, the criteria, how big can it get? How profitable can it be? How scalable is it? What are, what are your criteria then? (laughs) It's more just like, is this useful to musicians? Would it be fun? And, um, is it interesting to me? Uh, and that's it. There's some things that, you know, just naturally, uh, passionately attract you, and that's what you should be doing. Uh, it's funny, I actually kind of feel a little bit like those kind of, you know, Silicon Valley jerks that start something with like no plan of it ever earning any money, except the difference is they go ask people to give them, you know, millions of dollars to fund this thing that's never going to make any money. And instead, I'm just saying, okay, well, how do I just keep my costs low and just do this thing and not worry about what it earns or what it costs? Um, just do it because it needs to be done. So um, if you look at my personal site now, uh, Sivers.org, it's just my last name, S-I-V-E-R-S.org, is just a collection of all these uh, projects that I feel like doing. The only one that's going to uh, actually you know, have any chance of profit or being a real company is uh, Muckwork, which uh, I felt was just needed for years. It's the idea of... Um, a company that says we'll do it for you to the musicians, meaning everybody else out there is giving musicians a bunch of tools and widgets and stuff like that and directories full of information and, and all of it is like part of this do-it-yourself movement. Like, hey, musicians, you can be your own record label and your own uh, graphic designer and your own producer and your own uh, booking agent and your own this and this and that. And you know, it's kind of funny that in the early 90s, or I'm sorry, in the late 90s, that was empowering. And now, 10 years later into the DIY movement, it's it's a little overwhelming. It's like every musician I know knows all the things that they should be doing, but nobody has enough time to do them all. So it's like, oh, great. I am oh so empowered. <laughs> I can do it all now. You know, that's good in some ways, but in other ways, it's just like, oh, hell, now everything's on my shoulders. So I just wanted to make a company full of uh, assistants, like a kind of army of assistants that can help musicians do all of the uncreative, uh, boring, dirty work that needs to be done so that they can finally free up their time a little more to get back to actually making some music instead of spending their life, you know, with a mouse in their hand clicking to add MySpace friends or upload their music to yet another social network and all that kind of crap that musicians are kind of filling their day doing really, I think, is not a good use of their time. Uh, Somebody has to do it, but it doesn't have to be them. So if there's a good, cheap way to take care of it for them, um, that's what Muckwork is committed to doing. So for musicians out there listening who are pretty excited about this, where where is it at now? Muckwork.com is there, uh, though there's nothing there yet. But who knows, by the time you hear this, there may be. <laughs> uh, I think the other... Mean. Oh, yeah, yeah. So M-U-C-K-W-O-R-K.com. But, um, the, the other interesting thing is I think that the change, you know, you, you wanted to keep a theme about what's different now than three years ago. A couple months ago, I was talking with a manager of an artist, and I said, um, hey, you know, the, the, your artist has a fascinating story. I'd really like to do a success story interview uh, on them. And she said, yeah, sure, we'd be glad to. So that was about two months ago, and 
just yesterday she emailed me to say, um, hey, you know, just checking in on that. Um, wondering if we can make that interview happen sometime close to January because that's when their new album is coming out and I would really love to time it with this. And, you know, I always try to be as honest as I can. Um, and I was about to write something more polite, like, oh, okay, sure, I'll see if I can, you know, make that happen. And I thought, well, you know what? No, you know what my real answer is? It's just, I don't know. Like, I'm just doing this stuff when I feel like it. And I don't really feel like adding some imaginary pressure that's not needed. Like, um, I think sometimes you look back, I imagine when we're 70 or 80 years old and sitting in a rocking chair and looking back at our life, we'll realize that a lot of the pressure that we create for ourselves is, is pretty imagined. You know, um, once I, uh, once I was thinking of letting go of CD Baby, I kind of felt like, oh, but I, I have to do this and I have to reply to emails and I have to manage my team and I have to check in on the health of the company. I'm not talking all before I sold it. And I remember feeling like, God, I don't, I don't want to have to do all that stuff anymore. And a very wise friend of mine said, well, you never had to. <laughs> you just told yourself you had to and you, felt like you had to, but at any point you could have just walked away. Went, oh yeah, that's a really good point. You don't have to do anything. Because you have to, you know, maybe pay your rent or buy food. You have to eat and breathe and <laughs> stuff like that. But all that other stuff that you tell yourself you have to do, no, you don't really. You actually do have a choice that you don't have to do any of it. So I'm trying to be more conscious of that choice now and not create this uh, artificial pressure to you know, okay, I have to do this success story interview in January with this artist, so I try to schedule that now. It's like, well, wait, I'm, I'm just doing it for fun anyway. Uh, so why create that pressure? Fair enough. Well, I'm glad, uh, given that you said that, you felt like you, uh, you wanted to come on Venture Voice and you didn't have to. <laughs> I'll tell you, the Venture Voice rules, man. That I really, um, our interview three years ago uh, really surprised me. You asked me some really insightful questions um, and drew some stuff out of me that I'd never talked about before and uh, you did it again today. I think we've been on the phone for uh, 45 minutes or so and I have just told you a bunch of stuff that I have never told anybody except a few close friends um, and uh, I really like your your interviews. Hey, well, thanks so much, Derek, and we'll be all of our listeners are on under NDA, so it'll, uh, it'll be our little secret. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder if I wasn't allowed to tell you some of that stuff I just told you. I guess we'll find out, huh? Hey, find out the fun way, right? Yeah. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, I'll put links on the site so that all of our listeners can check out your new ventures and uh, hope we can reconnect soon and hear about how well they went. Thanks, man. And yeah, feel free to. Uh Anybody listening, I have, uh, I'm more available than I used to do, be, so you can drop me an email to Derek at Sivers.org, and I'm glad to help anybody with any questions. If uh, Even if anybody's looking for some free advice for their own project, I kind of enjoy uh, offering advice to, and help to other entrepreneurs. So assuming it's mostly entrepreneurs listening to this, uh, seriously, just feel free to ask me for any advice. I'd be glad to help. That's all for this edition of Venture Voice. Be sure to log on to VentureVoice.com to leave a comment on this show. You can either go public, usually the guests will read and respond. Uh, you can also find show notes, links to everything that Derek mentioned. 
We're also trying a couple new initiatives on Venture Voice. We want to ramp things up. One thing we're doing is looking for more sponsors so we can have more shows. If you're interested or know of someone who is, go to Venture Voice, click on Contact, and let us know. You can also check out wisdom.venturevoice.com. We're creating a collection of quotes about entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial wisdom, that you can access in a categorized, structured fashion. So we're both pulling them from VentureVoice.com, we're pulling them from books by entrepreneurs, and we're pulling them from other blogs, websites, even Twitter. So check out wisdom.venturevoice.com. I'd also like to thank my associate producer, Eddie Leviton, who's been very helpful in booking guests, researching, helping to put these shows together for you. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, I'm Greg Gallant with Venture Voice, entertaining entrepreneurship.